So tonight's topic, Garden of Amuna, and um, actually, I just wanted to mention that uh, someone sponsored for the shul, unfortunately couldn't make it tonight the last minute, but David Reckless and his wife sponsored an entire amount of books of uh, Garden of Amuna that are going to be available next week for sale. He's going to bring them tonight. But uh, next week, God willing, to be for sale. And it's very suggested that you read this because I don't, I don't do a reading class. I take a topic and deliver it. So it's good when you see the topic. It usually comes from a title in the book. Read that piece, and then we can continue within the class, okay? So that'll be available, God willing, next week. But today's topic is Emuna, removing anger from your heart. So let's discuss anger. <laughs> I love this. Everyone's looking at everyone. What we really would like everyone to do is pull out a mirror. But no, everyone's looking at the other person. Okay, it's a beautiful class. So let's talk about this. What does it mean removing anger from your heart? Something goes wrong. You're angry. Let's talk about the three scenarios of who you could be angry at. The way I see it, you can have three scenarios. You could be angry at the person who did it. You can be angry at yourself for being in that position. Or you can be angry at God. Those are, the way I see it, the three options you have when you start feeling anger flaring up. Who am I going to direct this anger at? And it's not an either or. It actually probably looks like comma, comma, and. So really when we're angry, we're probably angry at all three. We go through a stage where we're angry at the person who did this to us. We're even more angry at ourselves. How did we end up in this position? And ultimately speaking, because we believe that God's in charge of everything, we're going to point the finger at God. Those three angers usually are coexisting. What I'd like to do tonight is to take a moment and ask ourselves each anger, how do I work with it? You see, because in the world of Hasidus, Emotions are a boiling hot pot. Don't try to touch it. You're going to get burnt. But a pot has a handle. And if you use the handle, you won't get burned. The handle of emotions is intellect. And that's why the one thing you want to do when you're experiencing an emotional moment, number one, talking is not a good thing. Really. The fifth of our Trevor writes that. We actually have our morning class here at 6.15 to 6.45, Hasidus. We're actually studying that right now. Speech is a fan. You ever notice when you start talking about something that you almost got over, and all of a sudden, <gasps> you're hyperventilating again? Speech is a fan. It, it fans up. So number one, a good thing is not to talk. But what you really want to do is engage intellect. Because intellect is the radiator of the motor. It will cool down. Intellect is water. The heart is fire. When the heart is getting a little overheated, it's best to bring intellect into the picture. Just a simple example, an anxiety attack. What do you need to do when you're going through an anxiety attack? So the, the heart, yes, breathing is true. Very true, by the way. It brings oxygen to your brain. That's why breathing works. And forcing a smile actually also works because moving those muscles actually cause a reaction in your brain. But let's put that aside for a moment. 
what actually happens is that the one thing you want to do is use your brain because the left side of your brain, which is Bina, which is analytical, follows a very old-fashioned pattern. Conquer and divide. So what the brain does is it says, okay, let's draw the parameter of this crisis. It could be terrible parameters. We could be dealing with uh, fatality. But the minute your mind puts it out there, your mind has defined the borders of this problem. Huge, humongous, horrific. But it has now borders. It doesn't go on forever. And then the next thing the mind does is it subdivides and subdivides and subdivides and subdivides, and then you know the rule, right? If an elephant was kosher, how do you need an elephant? Mouthful by mouthful. And that's what the brain does. So the brain is always the handle by which to grab the pot. And if you're reacting emotionally, you're going to grab the pot and it's going to be painful. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go ahead and deal with this fiery emotion called anger, which really eats us up from the inside and the outside. And we're going to try to deal with it from the handle's point of view. Let's actually analyze each one of these angers. And if you can do this to yourself at that moment, you'll see that anger is not so unmanageable. Another issue here is, and I told you before, the first step is silence. It's not always good to deal with anger when you're in the heat of it all. Sometimes it's good to just duck. Let the storm blow over, pick up your head, see how much damage was done, and use your intellect to move forward. Not always do you have to try to subside the anger intellectually at the moment that is happening. At the moment that is happening, we're actually looking more for suppression. Just keep it down, keep it down, keep it down. And then later, revisit it. Revisit it through intellect. So let's talk about the first thing. The first thing, obviously, we're going to point the finger, right? That's the most important thing we have to do. Immediately, something's wrong. We don't need to know how to fix it. We need to know who to blame, right? We learned that from our government. It's beautiful. So we're not talking about what can we do about it yet. First, we need to know who's going down for this one. And that's the first process. Let's point the finger. And the, the one easiest to point the finger is someone else. So let's talk about that someone else. There is a book I mentioned to you in actually in this form before. There's a book written by Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, and it's called The Gateways, right? The name of the book is Duties of the Heart. It has gateways. There are six mitzvahs in the Torah that don't have no other limb in the body other than your heart. Faith, love, fear. Those are mitzvahs of the heart. Trust. So he has the gateway of trust. And in the gateway of trust, he presents something very important. He presents over there, the only way you can ever trust Hashem is if you ultimately believe that Hashem is in charge of every single detail that happens to you. So if Joe Schmo spills the soup on you, was that God doing or was that Joe Schmo? One of the huge issues, by the way, I mean, God bless him, and he's been through his own, unfortunately, had a sick child who passed away. I'm not here to judge anyone. But Kushner's book is a serious issue because he kind of comes to this term that God didn't do it. But if God didn't do it, then who did do it? And if God didn't do it, why would I ever pray to God again? I've told you this before, right? I walk into a store. I have a problem with the store. Something was wrong with the product. After two times wasting my time with the wrong person, the next person shows up, I want to just know one question. 
are you the one that can make decisions here? Because if not, stop wasting my time. I've been put on hold already for three times. Can I speak to the one in charge here? So if I don't believe God's in charge, why would I waste my time praying to him? So it's mandatory for me to be able to trust in God. It is mandatory that I believe that there's nothing that happens to me that wasn't by God. I, this Shlomazel, right? That famous joke, the Shlomil and Shlomazel, right? How's it go? The Shlomil spills the soup, Shlomazel is the one that the soup lands on. So, this Shlomil, he was, he was talking to someone. He was walking like this. How can I blame God? You're right. I cannot blame God, important words. I cannot blame God for his spilling the soup. But I can only blame God for the soup landing on me. Very important. Very important to understand that when it says in the Torah that A kills B, A is punished by death, A does not get punished by death because B is dead. Because B's being dead had nothing what to do with A. Because if it wasn't time for B to be dead, there's nothing A can do to kill him. The reason why A is being put to death is because he committed murder. It has nothing what to do with what happened to the victim. It was his bad choice of committing murder. So I'm actually dividing his act of murder, which is all on his lap, to the victim's dying, which is all on the victim's lap. And now let's talk about a beautiful Torah story that we read only three weeks ago. The brothers face Joseph. It's been 22 hard years. He's been a slave. He's been in prison. He's been separated from his family. 22 hard years. And now the brothers are facing him. Only that the tables have turned. He's not begging for mercy. They're now begging for mercy. And what does Joseph answer them? Joseph answers them, it wasn't you who sent me here. God sent me here, and now I merited to see why. Because I am going to be a source of sustenance through which the Jewish people will not be extinct. And that's why we only call three people our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet Tehillim calls every Jew Bnei Yosef. Because if not for Joseph, we wouldn't be alive. So at some level, Joseph is the father of all the Jewish people. Now here's an interesting thing. Let's dissect what's going on here. Because if you're really listening, Joseph is telling them something amazing. You guys got to work it out with God. You guys did a real no-no. You sold a brother. But with me, you have nothing to worry about. Because what you did is what you need to do to Shuva for. What happened to me is between God and me. Separate the two. No one has the power of freedom of choice to harm another person if it wasn't preordained on that other person. So what I'm really telling you was that what would happen to Joseph would have happened to him anyway. Ashanda that the brothers decided that they're going to be the messengers for this message. And that's where freedom of choice begins and ends. We have the right to tell God, for this one, don't use me. I can't tell God, don't do it. 
But what I could tell God is, don't use me. When you want to deliver flowers, call on me. If it's black roses, call on someone else. That's freedom of choice. And that's why in the book of law, the Alter Rebbe writes that the teshuva is not because of what happened. It's because of your evil use, usage of freedom of choice. Reya bechirato. Those are the words the Alter Rebbe uses. The Alter Rebbe doesn't say that you have to do teshuva because this one, this happened. The Alter Rebbe is not talking about the spilled milk. The Alter Rebbe is talking about the divine gift of freedom of choice. What do you do with it? What a shame. So ultimately speaking, teshuva is between you and God. Not between you and the victim. Nevertheless, and we spoke about this previously, that I was once by a Fabrenga, the Rebbe blessed memory, where the Rebbe clearly answered a very interesting question. If it's only about me and God, then why do I have to ask him for forgiveness before Yom Kippur? It clearly says that if you ask God for forgiveness for something that you did against another person without asking the other person first for forgiveness, it's a no-no. Yom Kippur won't forgive you. We'll save that for the q and I'm serious. Bring it up by the Q&A. What I want to talk about now is a very interesting scenario. I want to make this so simple for you that you can really see what the Alter Rebbe is saying and what Joseph said. So, my friend, you walk into a restaurant and you order something and the waitress brings you the soup and the soup is way too salty. So tell me, as a good male species, did you scream on the waitress? Most of us would. <laughs> what did the waitress have to do with the salt in the soup? You know who's responsible. What, you're afraid to walk into a cook who looks like this with a big knife? So you're going to start up with the little waitress who's trying to put her way through college? Follow what happened here? There is the cook and there's the waitress. The ABCs of Jewish trust in God is that there is only one cook in this kitchen. Many waiters and waitresses. Now ask yourself, are you being that type of person? Are you screaming at the waiter or the waitress for the way the food tastes? Because if you're having a problem with the person who did what they did to you because of what you're going through, then really what's happening is you don't have guts to face God. So let's scream at the waiter or the waitress. What if the waiter we'll do the Q. I'm sorry, but we'll do the Q and A later. I'm not going to leave here tonight before you finish your Q and A, but not right now. Okay, I'm sorry, Ari. So what actually happens over here in this process is an amazing process. I will share with you another thing that's beyond the boundaries of this class, just for a moment. That is one of the most difficult things we're doing to shuva, because most of us want to fix what really isn't in our realm of fixing. But what we're not man enough to do is to fix what we have to fix. So we're so busy focusing on what happened to the other person rather than realizing that what I need to do to tshuva is for the fact that I did this. That's the real issue here. So while the brothers are thinking about Joseph's pain, the real issue was Joseph realizes more than they realized that he was meant to be where he is. They need to work out their bad choice that they made. 
So from that perspective, how many times are we wasting our energy, our emotions, our blood pressure, so focused on who's to blame that I am getting nowhere in life very quickly? I have a list of people to tell you who's exactly to blame. This one and that one, if that one wouldn't have done this and this one wouldn't have done that. The Rambam writes, I'm going to take it one last step and then we're going to go further. The Rambam writes that a Jew who sees any horrific situation in life, whether it be that their muzzle went out, or God forbid they had a fire, or that it hasn't rained and they're in the agricultural business. Any Jew who sees this as anything else than a direct communication between God and him or her, Maimonides has a very, very harsh word. Because how can you not see if you trust that the only one who's making decisions of anything that's happening in your life is God? How can you not believe that everything that happens to you is a very intimate communication between you and God and God and you? And that's why Maimonides uses such a harsh word. God is knocking on your door. He's knocking on your door. He's talking to you. He's directing you. He's helping you change lanes. He's helping you accelerate. Whatever he's doing at that moment, capital H. But how can you decide, no, this isn't God. This is my boss. He was never, never appreciated me. And the list goes on and on and on and on. So follow that the Rambam doesn't just talk about the lack of the positivity in focusing on you, God, God, you. He also uses a very harsh word. If you're going to hide from that intimate communication between God and you and you and God by pointing to someone else. So really the focus, whenever you get into a situation where you find yourself mad at a person rather than focusing on how did God let this happen to me? Why did God let this happen to me? What am I supposed to do about this? Understand that you're screaming at the waitress because the soup is too salty. Let's move to the second one. I'm going to venture to say that the second one is more difficult than the first one. Even though we're all so quick to blame someone else, but then there are those naked moments when you step out of your shower and you couldn't avoid for a moment looking at yourself in the mirror. And ultimately speaking, you're always going to be more angry at yourself than you are at anyone else. And you're really dealing with that harsh pain. And in that harsh pain, what really happens is you get stuck somewhere. And until you stop being mad at yourself for what you've done, you really can't leave what you've done. There's too much of your energy and your soul stuck in what you've done. So really, I used to give a lecture before Yom Kippur. When everyone's giving lectures on forgiveness with God and forgiveness from your friends, <laughs> I used to give a lecture called Forgive Thyself. Because that's the most difficult thing to do on Yom Kippur. It's easier to forgive someone else. It's easier to forget all, ask God for forgiveness. But to forgive yourself, how could I have been such a schmo? 
what was I thinking? First time, new. The fifth time. So now we're going to talk about that for a moment. How do you handle, handle not being angry at yourself? You swore to yourself so many times, I'm not going down that road no more. I'm just not going there. Well, guess what? I'm on that road again. <laughs> Cruising away. So how do we get out of that anger? Here is a real mind twister. The Medrash says on a verse, Noda alilot al adam. How awesome is God's plot against the human? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting verse in the Jew, Jewish Torah. God's plotting against us? And the Medrash doesn't back down. The Medrash brings a proof. We know that our sages teach us that the Torah was written before God created the world. And in the Torah, there's a verse that says that a man, when he dies, and you step into the tent, and the whole laws of purity and impurity about death. But one second. We know that God told Adam that man wasn't meant to die. It will be on the day that you eat from this tree. You will bring death upon creation. And that's why he was supposed to live only a thousand years. Because the verse says that a day by God is a thousand years. He lived 930 because he gave 70 years away to King David. But originally, mankind wasn't supposed to die. Hard for you to fathom? It's very simple. In Judaism, you say there's two types of eternalisms. One is the eternalism of a species, and one is the eternalism of that item. Humans have the eternalism of a species. The sun, the stars, the moon has the eternalism of that very same sun that we read about in Genesis on Wednesday is the very same sun that exists today. The humans were supposed to be like the sun. Adam was supposed to be walking the earth today. So now the Medrash says, one second, but before you even created the world, you already have a whole slew of mitzvahs that depend upon death. So you, by hook or by crook, you, capital Y, you, by hook or by crook, we're going to get Adam to eat from that tree because you preordained in your master painting that man has to die. But man won't die if Adam doesn't eat from that tree. Thus the sages point a finger at God and say how awesome is your plotting against mankind. Because you, great dear God, no matter what would happen, you would not back off until Adam ate from that tree because that is the master plan. Now we get into the whole issues, freedom of choice, and it goes on and on and on. So I'm going to give you a little, a little one-liner on freedom of choice because Maimonides deals with this. The Rebbe, I was by Fabrengen with the Rebbe, blessed memory, dealt with it. Because of the Rambam, the Rambam asked a question and said that we can't even answer it. The Ravid attacks him. Why'd you ask a question that you can't answer? A special such a question. This wasn't like the price of rice in China. This is a huge biggie here. Without this, religion doesn't move on. Why'd you open up a can of worms? And then I had a teacher who gave it to me in one sentence. He told me as follows. Remember this, because this is really for the middle part of this lecture, which is the anger about ourselves. This really puts things in perspective. Foresight, freedom of choice. Hindsight, divine providence. 
Now, I'm not going to get into the tech stuff of how that makes sense. But for right now, I just want this to be a fundamental fact in our relationship with God. Foresight, freedom of choice. It didn't happen yet. You and only you will choose what you're going to do. Hindsight, divine providence. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God have made me sin? In the book of prophets, if you give a look into it, you have the answer written all over the place. God drives us to where he needs to drive us so that we can come back home from there. What that does for God and for ourselves is two things. It actualizes omnipotent potential within our soul, number one. Number two, it brings back pieces of creation that are lying in darkness to God. One of the examples I use for this is there was a certain person who, and not that I'm judging or who might decide that's why he got it, but there was a certain person, and I remind me his name, Michael Milken, Michael Milken, 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 the guy with the junk bonds. Michael Michael? Okay. Michael Milken ended up with prostate cancer. Do you know what that did for us? You see, political correctness, I'm not here to start out with anyone, but political correctness had all the funds going into breast cancer. Not that much going into prostate cancer. But because Michael Milken had prostate cancer, we today have a cure for prostate cancer. Now that is a medical thing. But I could tell you what I'm trying to say with this is, on a spiritual level, it's the same way. There's a reason why King David was pushed into doing the sin with who later became his queen, mother of King Solomon. Because only because King David ended up in that position and King David made it back to God, we all now have a cut path in the forest through which we can now walk when we fall into that type of mistake. So I truly believe that God drives us mercilessly into making the mistakes that we make because each and every one of us is the only one that he trusts with this mistake. So there is no no point of return. Yesterday I give a class in the girls' high school and uh, by that class, this topic came up, and one of the girls said, but it's impossible to do teshuva, and it's impossible to do this. And my answer to her was, I just told her, I'm going to tell you what I tell myself. If I ever reach the point of no return, I'll be dead. Because there's no reason for me to be down here. Why torture my soul for no reason? The mere fact that I haven't yet reached the point of no return is the fact that I'm actually still breathing. So if I'm still breathing... I know that I could do something about this. And if I can figure that out, I can learn to forgive myself in hindsight. So what I'm actually doing is, I'm trying to separate what paralyzes us and what empowers us. See, because most of the time when we're angry at ourselves and disgusted with ourselves and so depressed and so full of shame and yada, 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 what actually we're doing is we're poisoning ourselves to such a place 
where we cannot no more come back. We've paralyzed ourselves. It's doomed, it's over, suicide, all the wonderful things that goes through a person's mind when they really think that I've done the unthinkable to the point of no return, and I'm done. So as much as you may feel, and I go through this every time I give this lecture, but you're exonerating, what do you mean? It's not God's fault, what are you doing? No, 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 no. Hear what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that God put you where he put you because he empowered you and trusted you to come back from there. So while you would rather hide behind the shame that exonerates you from trying because it's doomed, it's over, I'm going to hell. Just a matter of time. I'd like to take that away from you. I'd like to remove from you the right to exonerate yourself from doing teshuva because you're so stuck in shame, in guilt, in pain, in doomsday. So really realize that when you're angry at yourself, it's not a turbo boost to get you out of hell. It's actually soldering the metal door on hell with you on the inside. So it's so important that in the midst of your shame and pain, to be able to say, if I did this, not if I will do this, that's freedom of choice. But if I did this, then I absolutely acknowledge that at some level, it was God alone who preordained that I should do that terrible thing. But why would God do that? Because God empowered me to do teshuva. And if you do teshuva like a mensch, whenever any human being does teshuva like a mensch, He's not teshuva repentance, returning home. Anytime any human being does teshuva like a mensch, he hasn't just brought himself back. He's brought along an entire new pathway for other people. That is the power of sin. In certain back alleys of Chassidus, we actually say that the purpose of creation was not Torah and mitzvahs, the purpose of creation was teshuva. I read in an amazing book. It's an interesting book. It's a part of the AA program. And the book over there writes a story how one of these elders told God, God, please, I ask of you, don't allow mankind to ever sin ever again. And God smiled and said, but if I do that, who will I forgive? So there's a purpose here. There's a purpose in sin. And one of the reasons that we're so mad at ourselves when we sin, believe it or not, is a simple word. It's called ego. I can't get over that I did that. I can't get over that I got into this position. But if you can get past the ego and you can say, you know what? I've made a lot of lousy choices in my life. True. But I'm in this position because God put me here. And there's only one reason why God would ever put me here or if the word put you here really bothers you let's use the word let you go there there's only one reason why God would let you go there and the reason why he let you go there is because you are the chosen one to bring this piece of experience back home I'm going to say one more line on this and again I'm not quoting any of my teachers to take it for face value when I read a lot of the things in Torah, Jewish history, Jewish teachings, it is my own gut belief 
that there isn't a single sin that's possible to be committed that won't one day be committed by a Jew. I really believe that. Because if exile and redemption is really not about taking the Jew out of exile, it's about taking the exile out of the Jew. If exile and redemption is really about bringing God into every scenario so that exile cannot exist no more, because when you have exile, which spells the word Gimel, Vav, Lam, and Hey, and then you bring in the Aleph, which is God, which now turns Gola into Geula. That's the only difference between the word exile and redemption in Hebrew. They're both the exact same letters, only that redemption has an Aleph in it. So I really believe that there are chosen souls, that they will be pushed into the darkest alleys of exile because God knows that this one is going to bring the Aleph there. And that means that even those dark alleys will one day belong to God. I really believe that. And I've, the more I read, you know, like the famous, uh, the famous Bob, his name is, right? Bob W. Where would we be today if he wasn't an alcoholic? And this goes on, Bill W., thank you. Where does this go? Where, where, where did this come from? So if you really think about this, you really think about this, if you find yourself today Wake up and ask yourself, oh my God, I can't believe I'm where I am today. How did I ever make these choices? Swallow hard and say, okay God, why'd you let me go here? Why did you let me go here? And if the answer isn't a proactive answer, try again. Because the answer of why God let us go as low as we went has got to be a proactive answer. And that's why God drove Adam to eat. Because if humans wouldn't have death, we wouldn't later be able to redefine life. So I hope that that kind of puts in perspective how to get over being angry at yourself. Being angry at yourself is being way too egotistical in thinking how much control you have over your destiny. Of course we make choices. Of course God placed destiny on our lap. But when you realize that something went wrong, how did this ever happen? Whoever dreamt I would look like this? Then you need to stop and say, okay, Hashem, let me ask myself the question in the right way. Why am I here? God, tell me, why am I here? And the answer will be proactive if you can stop beating yourself up for what you've done. Let's go to the last case. The last case is that we're mad at God. An interesting question. I actually very often sit with people in counseling and I, they're like afraid to tell me they're mad at God. No, 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 I believe in God. <laughs> okay, let's talk about this. Because I don't think being mad at God and believing in God is a dichotomy. If you want to know the truth, the only one who's never mad at God is an atheist. Because which God am I supposed to be mad at? But someone who's not an atheist, and someone who's a strong believer that God is everything and everything is God, and someone who really believes in that poem footprints, God's always there right next to me, then how can I not be mad at God? So it's normal if you believe in God to at some point have to point the finger at God. God, 
If you're not going to ask, why did you do this to me? You're going to ask what every child asks the parent. Why didn't you stop me? You knew that I was doing this wrong. But honey, I tried to stop you. But come on, you're my parent. You know you could have stopped me. So at some point, we're going to have to grapple with this concept. I'm mad at God for the, the things that happened to me. Even though I'm all egotistical, you know, it's, it's interesting. Because I find very often, God forbid, a man and a woman have an affair. It's so funny how when I'm talking to the man, the man will always make sure that I know that she wasn't the one that tricked me. It was me. Because I'd rather have to live with the shame of making a bad choice than to believe that I was taken for a fool. But nevertheless, that's what I'll tell my rabbi. But when I'm sitting alone, I'm going to ask God, how did you let this happen to me? So let's go back a little bit to what we spoke before, but I want to just make one introduction. There is, there is a ruling in the Talmud. The Thumgamla Shekhma. It's only according to the back of the camel that the load is placed on. The one thing we can never tell God is, God, you've given me too much on my plate and not enough to be able to deal with it. That's the first rule we need to put right then and there. Without that, we can't go any further. If I would ever believe that God knows me, who else but God knows how much I can handle? It's God and God alone who only God knows how much I can handle. So where's the logic to believe that God knows how much I can handle and then dumped another load on me? The people in history who did that was, unfortunately, the horrors of Holocaust. The medical Nazis, they wanted to see how far the human can go before he plots God doesn't do that. God would never overload us. So the first thing we need to know is that if God placed this on my shoulders, I could deal with it. Because most of our anger and our frustration comes from a horrible feeling called helplessness. That is the biggest drive to anger. You put me in a position where I got to now work so hard, I'll be mad but I can deal with it. Put me in a position where I'm a cornered animal and I, I'm helpless. It's done. It's over with. The anger then is going to go berserk. You go from depression to anger to anger to depression to bipolar and you just live life. <laughs> but that's the truth. That's what happens. But if I believe, oh God, do you have any idea how much work you just dumped on my plate? That's frustrating. But it's not the end of the line. Most of us feel the way we feel because we just don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. If I know that I'm going through seven hunger years, but I will be able to survive, and then I will move on. Okay. God, not my best choice, but okay. But the minute you get into that position where I feel God gave me more than I can handle. Then I got to be mad at God. Because who's the only one who should have known better how much I can handle? 
And the minute you have that rock bottom faith, that real bedrock of faith, that God, if you gave this to me, I can handle it. You're not helpless, and a huge sharpness, that sharp edge of anger is gone. I'm not going to say you won't be angry, but the sharp edge of anger, that unbearable pain that doesn't allow you to stop for a moment is gone. Now we need to get to stage two. Okay, so God never leaves me helpless. I may be fighting with him, telling him I'm not going down that road, but that's the only road you have to go, son. I'm not going down that road, so I may feel helpless because I'll die before I go down that road. That's not helpless. That's, you got a real chunk to swallow down and move on. But if there is a road for you to take, and you're telling God, I am not going down that road, don't later come to me and tell me, well, me, God left in a helpless situation. No, he didn't leave you in a helpless situation. I don't like talking like this, especially, you know, it's being recorded. But uh, I'm a morbid individual. And a lot of times I try to put myself in a frame of mind of worst scenarios. It's very interesting what that did to me. And I actually use this a lot when other people are in pain and I can help them. You know, people say, I live for my kids. And I live for that. And I live for this. I want to ask myself, you know, I come from Holocaust survivors. My grandfather lost his wife and two kids. And I know we should never talk like this. But I want you to know, God forbid, would I commit suicide? And I realized, no. Because, yeah, I live for my kids, and yeah, I live for this, and yeah, I live for that. You know why I say that? Because I don't have the guts to say, at the end of the day, I live for my destiny. And if everything else is taken away from me, the one thing that no one could take away from me as long as I'm still breathing is my journey towards my destiny. The thought of it is horrifying. But you follow what I'm doing with you? Don't use the word helpless just because it's distasteful or even horrific. And that's so important for your own health and for your relationship with God. And yes, if at the end of the day you lose that relationship with God, then there's nothing left of you. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that can ever get you beyond the black hole that exists in the human's heart is when you reach that one point of view that's untouchable. And the one point of view that's untouchable is where you're no one's wife, you're no one's mother, you're no one's daughter. You're just you. And one of the things I always tell people when they're stuck in a situation where they're the ultimate caretaker of someone who's closest to them, when you walk off a bit your mother through the last journey of life, I always tell people, every day, take 30 minutes where you're no one's daughter, you're no one's spouse, and you're no one's mother. You're you. When you get to that point in your place, you realize what the Gemara says. There is no camel that was overloaded by God. You have 
the strength to deal with what you need to deal with. Distasteful, yucky, whatever it is. But it's dealable. Now that leads us to the next question. Why would God do it? Why would God put me in a distasteful position? And to answer that question, we need to realize one thing. The Talmud says, there is no way to sweet talk oil out of an olive. You can be the best car salesman in the world. You are not talking oil out of an olive. There's only one way to get oil out of an olive, and that is to crush the olive. Human beings are, by nature, lazy creatures. We don't go to where we don't have to go. One of the biggest things they teach you in addiction recovery is that until the addiction isn't a greater friction than dealing with life, you're going to stick with your addiction. Because we will always choose the path of least friction. That's what we do. And that's why we are so oft, and I find this with a lot of people. You guys have already heard enough class for me to know that I got a huge pet peeve with this holy word called tikkun. It's really created mediocrity and acceptance of suffering for no reason. Yeah, tikkun exists, but not where you think it exists. Why are you suffering? Tikkun. Why am I married yet? Tikkun. Why am I losing my house? Tikkun. In my last life, I must have been a horror. Everything in my life is tikkun. There's a reason why God puts you through situations. And it's not just about opening up and saying, I'm yours, God. Let me suffer. What it really is about is crushing the olive. It's about getting you out of cruise control, pushing you into a position where you have to accelerate. I've told you the story once before. There was a chassid who used to come to his rebbe, and every single year he used to ask for a blessing that he was a taxi driver, the old-fashioned taxi driver, and all he asked was, God, please, please, Rebbe, give me a blessing. My horse shouldn't die. He should be able to push. Pull. One day the horror happened, and his horse died. And he went to the Rebbe, and he asked the Rebbe, please, I need Parnassah. That year he became wealthy. Because until then, all he asked for was, the horse shouldn't die. Okay, I'll give you that bracha. There's another story. The Baal Shem Tov moved into someone's house for Shabbos. And he told that family, I'm coming here with my yeshiva for Shabbos. I need you to cook like you've never cooked before. The story goes on that the guy started preparing. The Baal Shem Tov walked in. Not enough. He ended up mortgaging his house. He ended up taking loans and everything. And the Baal Shem Tov told his students, don't leave a crumb left in this house. And after, after the story, after Shabbos, when the Baal Shem Tov said, thank you so much, and he left, the guy was really in trouble. At this point, he was doomed. Mortgaged his house, took loans, everything was gone. He went out to the forest, and he cried his heart out to Hashem. I'm doomed. I really need your help. The story goes on that he ended up coming back to the Baal Shem Tov, extremely wealthy, to thank the Baal Shem Tov. And the students asked the Baal Shem Tov, why? Well, how did this happen? 
And Baal Shem Tov didn't give no hocus pocus, you know. He gave a very simple answer. It's actually, Bahavdil, it's actually a line in Jim Collins' great book called From Good to Great. And what is that line? The greatest enemy of great is good. That's the issue with Tikkun. So what really has to happen is that we need to be driven. We need to be driven. And sometimes we're adamant about not being driven. I'm very happy and comfortable where I am. But Hashem's not very happy and very comfortable where you are. And I've shared this question with you before. I've written it in my emails to you so many times. For whatever reason, I've come to a point in my life where there's only one question God's going to ask me that I'm really worried about. And trust me, I've had my fair share of sins. But my worry isn't that much no more about what I've done wrong. The one question I have nothing to answer God is, is when he asks me, what did you do with the talent and time that I gave you? So if you're sitting here thinking, I don't have to be a millionaire. I'm okay, just let me pay my bills. I don't have to really become someone big in the community. Just let me get married, live quietly somewhere. No one should even remember I live. For you, that's okay. You probably even pride yourself with how humble you are. For God, that's not okay. So there's a reason why God pushes us. And being pushed never feels good. Not until you realize what's going on. You see the real guys in the gym that are working out, they love it. They love the pain because they've already learned to translate pain into gain. But for the rest of us, we just don't like that. It's okay. I happen to think my pot belly is cute. <laughs> That's what goes on. It isn't until you've gone out there. It isn't until you've been pushed. It isn't until you appreciate the oil that comes out of being crushed that you enjoy being a little bit crushed. Not only that, people who really get good at this, they save God the job. Really, people who really get good at this, when things become too plateau, they start looking to accelerate. So if you stop and you think about this, you realize, I'm not mad at God. I'm not mad at God, because how could I be mad at God for telling me, you can do better than this. Come on, boy. Move. God isn't crushing me. God is making me. I'm busy telling God I'm not that special, and God's telling me, yes, you are that special. Come on, move. Recap time. Number one, don't get mad at the waiter. You're wasting your time. Number two, there's nothing horrible you did that wasn't meant for you to do. Figure out why it was meant for you to do. And the answer better be proactive. Number three, stop hating God for loving you so much. <laughs>